Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey there, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Today we feature Rachel Sherl. She's the CEO of Spark Solutions for Growth. She's also a chief vagipreneur, and she's going to talk a lot about women's health and her career in that business. And she's also a friend of mine from the gym. So if you listen often, you know that that's a reoccurring pattern. Uh, and if you missed last week's episode, it featured Sue and Natalie Ismail. They're the co-founders of NADS. And I hope you enjoy these shows. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm excited to be sitting with Rachel braun Sherl, managing partner and co-founder of Spark Solutions for Growth and author of Orgasmic Leadership, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Sexual Health and Wellness, and the only vagipreneur that I know. <laughs> Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I want to give our listeners backstory. I didn't meet you through business. I met you at the gym. Absolutely. The gym is a recurring theme for me and all my storytelling. I meet very wonderful, fabulous people at the gym. Absolutely. And I met you like many years ago at this point. Many years ago. Might be like three years, four years. And we were too busy working out and we only occasionally talked about work. And then um, I got to know you through the years, which is very cool. And um, well, let's start with something really simple, Rachel. You rolled in here with a suitcase. What are you doing today? So I'm heading to Orlando to speak at a conference, which is focused on people in the incontinence um, and menstruation product category. So it's a big conference and I'm going to talk about uh, feminine care disruption. So new businesses, new ideas, new materials, new distribution models all around the changes that are happening in some very fundamental areas for women's lives. This is so exciting that actually we're talking together and it seems weird that we haven't had this conversation at the gym because um, I'm very obsessed with menstruation because I am um, changing. I'm 43. And um, after I had my second child, my last child, um, I noticed a huge shift in my periods, like crazy. Like mm-hmm. I call them crime scene periods. <laughs> and um, my that, my favorite crime, well, I have two really good crime scene stories. My first one was I was at Epcot and my daughter and I were standing online to meet Mulan. We took our picture with Mulan and then this woman with a southern accent taps me on my shoulder and she says, ma'am, are you in your menses? And I said... I didn't. I don't use that word. So I right, really right, right, she's right. talking about it first, and I'm like, "What?" And she's like, "You're bleeding." My entire back of my shorts were covered in red, com- completely covered, and I was not prepared for this because I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't right. know that the tools I was using for the past thirty, well, twenty, whatever years, however, we were no longer going to be sufficient. The aisle when I was sixteen would not be working anymore. So um, I hemorrhage, basically, is mm-hmm. what happens. So this is a really exciting topic. Um, what, are, what, what are you going to be talking about specifically when you're there? So orgasmic leadership fundamentally is about the people and the products and services and companies that are created to help women with better solutions from, let's say, menstruation to menopause. So menstruation is the starting point, and as you point out, you have different experiences and different needs as you go through that. 
we're talking about fertility, infertility, pregnancy, um, incontinence, menopause, and every other hormonal change that happens to you along the way. Um, so when I talk about menstruation specifically, one of the things I do is highlight some real uh, advantages that people have made in materials, which has a big impact. It might be interesting to know that it's not required that you that a manufacturer lists the ingredients that are in it, something that you insert vaginally. You have to know it's in your cereal, but you don't have to, there's no regulation that forces a company to tell you what's in your tampon. So there are, there's a lot of development on better products, better ingredients, better packaging, different distribution, more customized approaches. So, you know, you could have your crime scene package where you order stuff that will be effective for the first few days of your period, and then you have your crime scene package, and then you might need some pads. But now there's a real ability to, you know, online, independently, in a personalized way, get exactly what you need. Mm -hmm. And you know what the ingredients are, and they will come when you want them to come, and they will hopefully deliver in a, at least as good a way, if not better, than what you had before. So there are companies that have launched period panties, which are literally what they say. They're meant to absorb um, a lot of fluid during your period. You can wash them and obviously rewear them like regular underwear. There are ones that um, flex cups, which basically the closest analogy is you insert it similar to what... You to be like to use a diaphragm and so there's no menstrual fluid it makes it much easier and cleaner not better or worse but uh, less blood flow um, when you're engaging in intercourse during your period so there's all kinds of things and the most fundamental ones how do you prepare yourself how do you know what your body's doing you know with all these trackers as well you could now track your crime scene periods and so they would never again hopefully or at least a much reduced rate surprise you like that so um, you mentioned <coughs> the word preparation which I think is like kind of the key to everything we actually as an agency Support Girls Helping Girls, period, mm -hmm. which is a local um, not-for-profit that actually brings a year's worth of um, pads or tampons, whatever the girl wants, to women in need, girls and women in I need, love so that. they can be prepared, right? Because right? this is, that's the name of the name. I wasn't prepared when I was meeting Mulan. It's right. <laughs> I love right? that visual of you meeting Mulan in that crime scene <laughs> is, is priceless. Right. And um, I actually have a photo of myself and my daughter in my bedroom of that meeting with Mulan, like, and it's, I laugh at it because um, I'm excited to be in a business where we can have these conversations where I can, you know, be on a podcast and talk about my crime scene period with you. Right. This is very cool. So when I talk about orgasmic leadership, I really mean to put it in perspective. These are big, big, big challenges that women have, and they're also big, big businesses. So this is not just about it's nice to talk about, similar to your podcast, right. this is business. So just to put some parameters around it, 43% um, of women at some point in their lives have sexual concerns and difficulties, big numbers. That's 40% greater than the number of men, percentage of men who suffer from erectile dysfunction. A third of women at some point in their lives have incontinence symptoms, cis symptoms. Uh, a third of women never experience orgasms. Uh, what else do I have for you? Less than half the states in the country require sex education, and only some subset of those require it to be scientifically or medically accurate. Close to 50% of pregnancies every year in the U.S. are what they describe as unwanted or mistimed. So when I talk about orgasmic leadership and women's health, I'm really talking about coming up with better solutions to you meeting Mulan in that situation, as well as 
anything across the range of a woman's life. So you know this because you've been in the space for a long time. Historically, manufacturers have spoken to women as like a body part. You're a menstruating woman. You need pads. Mm -hmm. You're a woman who's trying to get pregnant. You need a pregnancy test kit. And what the companies that are doing, mine and others, are really speaking to women as you say, as she changes, mm -hmm. as different preparations are required, as different challenges affect her in her life, regardless of what it is, whether it's a different stage of motherhood or a health situation or a financial situation, we're constantly changing. And there are finally companies talking to us with that understanding. Right. So I don't even think that physicians do a good job with this. Like, um, you know, I kind of what you're talking about. I went to one doctor when I wanted to get pregnant and it was, you know, we used IVF. So like I, you know, I knew I fit that bucket. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but when I went to talk to my physician about like my crime scene periods, she, she's like, you're fine. You're fine. Right. Like right. I really had to like over time get, talk to my friends and figure out like, what am I asking my doctor to do? Right? And who are the right her, people for me? Right. To push her further. Like, okay, so, you know, do a scan, do a thing. Let me know that I'm okay. Right. right? So, um, physicians don't want to spend the time really having these conversations. We had seen research that says only three to 5% of obstetricians and gynecologists are talking to women about this small area of sexual awareness and enjoyment. Some, not all are talking about menopause. Some are talking about pain and painful, um, intercourse, some are talking about menstruation, some are talking about fertility or infertility, but there are very few who, who make patients feel, and we get this from speaking to thousands of women, that they understand the totality and the complexity of her sexuality and all its glory, okay. so to speak. So exactly what you alluded to, it's almost like you're doing discovery and you're on a scavenger hunt trying to find the right medical care. On a deserted island. On That's a deserted island, like. yeah. Right. And many of the companies, to that point, are trying to fill the void and having much more comfortable conversations which with much more accessible language and that's one of the things I spend a lot of time about so a lot of time talking about if we don't have a language how do we have this conversation mm -hmm. so we're 20 years into a universe where we have erectile dysfunction drugs and bigger longer stronger and four-hour erections and one of the comments I always make is you know women don't think of sexuality as a performance sport so that language really just doesn't apply right. and I often do I do a lot of speaking to students and companies and conferences and I always ask when I walk in doesn't matter if there are five people or five thousand people I want a show of hands you know how many people are actually looking for a partner with a four-hour erection. It doesn't matter, man, woman, essentially no one's looking for that. So we need to have a better language. We need to be using the right words for our body parts. There's a growing, as a, as a mom um, of children younger than mine, there's a growing body of research that suggests that children who are taught the right names for their genitals and their body parts and what their functions are and what they do are more likely to report instances of abuse and trauma. That's huge. Mm -hmm. If you don't care at all about women's sexuality and enjoyment and language and conversation, Let's say you don't. Everybody cares about children. So there's so many other conversations that need to be had around this. You know, we're joking about crime scene, although that could be, if you didn't have a sense of humor, a really traumatic experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it could have been traumatic for your daughter. Yeah. And you wouldn't be laughing about Mulan. You would only remember that one piece of that conversation, right. of that experience. So... One of the things that I really see happening and I, that I like to be a part of is making the conversations more comfortable. You know, just very easy. When we're hiring people to work with us, 
you have to be able to say the word vagina. Right. Not because we say it just for fun. It's because we're talking about vaginas. We're talking about vulvas. We're talking about female sexuality. So if you're not even comfortable having a conversation in that space, how are you going to be in the business of that space? Right. So who hires you? Like who's, who, who wants your services? So... Um, Fortunately, it seems to be, I'm, I've been very lucky that people do um, want to take advantage of the, of, the, of the expertise that I built in this space. So I really work for a range of companies, large and small, but always funded, venture-backed. And as I mentioned, from you know menstruation to menopause, really trying to figure out who is their target, how do we reach them, um, what is the motivating message, are we asking them to add something that they're not already doing, do they have to exchange our product for something else, how do we reach them, how do I raise money to reach them, how do I develop partnerships that might accelerate my growth. So very fundamental business questions in a category where there is a lot and much less so every day, a fair amount of cultural resistance. Right. And how long have you been um, an expert on this topic? So, way over a decade. So I ran a company that had a product that it was a topically applied product that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women. So that's sort of when I first came into this vaginal space. Mm-hmm. I had I've worked for over 20 years in women's health. So products that affect women from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes. So you know the benign hair care, skin care, oral care to the more serious um, fertility, infertility. And then the not-so-glamorous foot fungus, psoriasis, you know, hemorrhoids, you name it. So I'd spent a lot of time in the space of women's health, but in the last 10 or 12 years focused much more on what I would call really sexual and reproductive health. All right. So um, 10 or 8 years ago when you created this product, was that your first product? My first female sexual health product. And I didn't create it. My business partner, Mary, and I bought it. It was an existing asset. Um, And when we were exposed to it, you're in marketing, it would seem like a perfect storm. There had been many active clinical programs for products that improve arousal, desire, and satisfaction. Many of them had gone by the wayside. And that's that's for a fairly straightforward reason. When we talk about male sexual response, you know, think of the response as a hydraulic system. So when a Viagra-type product, which is a vasodilator and increases the blood flow, works, it increases the blood flow, the hydraulic pump pumps, and everything works. One of the reasons it's so complicated to find solutions for women is because we are more complicated. So our sexual response is a combination of physiological factors, psychological, contextual, social, behavioral. You know, it's it's not all in our heads, but some of it is. And the connection between um, your body and your brain is quite different in a woman uh, than in a man. So when we looked at this and we said, wow, there's no language, that's pretty exciting. There's no one really talking about this. There's There's clearly a huge need when you look at the 43% of women who have sexual concerns and difficulties. You know, we've sold hemorrhoid cream. You're always looking for a product that's emotionally engaging. What's more engaging than sex? Right. So it really was a market opportunity that was presented to us. Someone showed us a business plan. And I literally, on a way to a client meeting, was reading it aloud to my business partner, Mary. And we, we just couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe that this was this untapped area. So it was really a business opportunity that caught our attention. And where's that company now? 
we sold it to a specialty pharmaceutical company that is focused really on male and female sexual health. And their approach has really been, because it has been a challenge in many cases, building businesses in the U.S. in this space. One of the strategic reasons we sold to them was because their business is based in large part on building strategic distribution relationships around the world. So it turns out it, at least prior to the last two years, is much easier to, to get people excited and give people opportunity to buy these products ex-US. But now over the past you know, two or three years, we're seeing an explosion in what they call femtech and sextech. Mm-hmm. And so the product still exists. It's still helping a lot of people. And it really is something that I always hold near and dear to my heart. So you mentioned this number, 43% of women feel like they are challenged. At some point in their lives, have sexual concerns and difficulties. Sounds like a low number. Well, if you think of that's almost one out of every yeah, two people. I would think it's every person. I mean, like, how can it not be every person at some point? It's interesting because every time you say a statistic, there are different camps. Yeah. So one of the things we would talk about with the product Zestra that I um, had worked on uh, um, for that first company was that the average person in a committed relationship has uh, sexual intimacy of some sort once a week. And we'd either, either get a reaction that much <laughs> and, you know, or that little. Um, so I just want to back up and sort of describe a little bit about what this thing is called sexual response. Yeah. And a clinician gave us a great analogy that we've always used and seems to always give people a clear visual of what it is we're talking about. So when you think about female sexual response and, you know, the 43%, which sounds big Uh um, when you think about, you know, only 30% of men suffer from erectile dysfunction. I don't believe that either. And there's billions (laughs) and billions of dollars sold of that product. So think of female sexual response as a bus ride. Some women don't want to get on the bus. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. lack of desire. Some women get on the bus and they don't enjoy the ride. It's too fast. It's too slow. It's boring. They've been there before. They don't like the scenery. That's lack of arousal. And some women never get to their ultimate destination. Right. And as any woman knows, or as any person who's spoken to a woman knows, (laughs) if all those three things aren't working, she's not running back to get on the bus for the next, you know, to get to the next depot. So the concept that it is, it affects so many parts of your sexual response is to me one of the reasons that it's so important. Yeah, okay, so with the whole bus thing, then I feel like it should be a bigger number. You're okay. <laughs> well, the I think study, it's underreported. Okay. <laughs> and that's a study that was done in 1999. That is sort of the statistic, but, uh-huh. you know. Oh, yeah, you're in, that study again yeah. a long time ago. Right? We are, we're maybe we're um, apt to be a little more honest with ourselves these days. And they also measured in fairly narrow ranges of sexual activities. If you think of what has been happening with gender fluidity, there are so many more activities that people are engaging in. So just looking at you know intercourse really understates the complexity yes. of all the things that people are um, engaging in. Yes. Okay. Thank you for sharing that data. That's really fascinating. Okay. I want to hear about this term vagipreneur because I, like I said, I have not met a vagipreneur before. Um, did you coin this term? No. Abby Ellen, who's a journalist and an author, um, was one of the first people to write an article about this business. When we started the business, um, we discovered a big challenge, which was that nobody would take our money for advertising. So when I say nobody, we'd go to 100 outlets, whether they were cable, network, um, online, offline, radio, it didn't matter. We would say we have money, and they would say no. And 
Abby got a hold of this and thought it was really quite interesting and wrote an article that sort of put us on the map, which was about the disparity between men and women's advertising. So we all see Viagra advertised on the Super Bowl at 5 p.m. on CBS. We couldn't get our ads on Lifetime at 8.30 p.m. when I'm pretty sure no 12-year-old boys and girls are watching. So it was really, the whole conversation was really in response to a business challenge. The fact that we couldn't pay for advertising seemed to us to be a story. Mm -hmm. And in the context of doing that research, um, Abby said, oh, like a vagipreneur, like a person in the business of female health. And I loved it. And it's a very descriptive shorthand. People get it. They laugh. It gets their attention. And I said, you know what? That really works. You came up with it. Do you want it? And she said, no, I don't. And so I trademarked it several years ago. That's awesome. Yeah. Genius. So let's talk about this um, male versus female sexual health situation. Because I'm sure my kids have seen tons of um, erectile dysfunction ads, right? Mm-hmm. Just by being in the room with it. Right. Because it's ubiquitous and it's kept, you know, TV stations in business for the past many years. So why is it? Why is this happening that um, for years now we are inundated with messages around ED? Um, tell me. What there, there are a couple of different perspectives. So when we would go into the actual networks and you go through a process called standards and practices where you say, this is what I'd like to put on air, and they say, yes, no, maybe, change this, change that. We literally were never given a clear answer as to why they wouldn't put us on air. You know, the one thing that people said to us, and this product was clinically proven, double-blind, placebo-controlled, pharmaceutical quality study, is that, you know, they were concerned that they would get complaints to the networks, which doesn't really stand up because people get more, the networks get more complaints or had historically gotten more complaints about the erectile dysfunction drugs than any other category. You balance that with the fact that hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising are going towards the networks. Um, it's a little harder to say no to a revenue stream like that than smaller products from lesser known companies. So at its core, I think it's a revenue issue. I think the bigger companies are louder. I think historically the products focused on men have been louder. You know, theirs was a pharmaceutical. I would have been okay, I think, if someone said to me, you know what, that's a pharmaceutical and yours is regulated as a cosmetic. Mm -hmm. And I would be able to then bring in my pharmaceutical model study that was published in a respectable journal and say, but look, we have science. You know, there were other companies that were advertising at the time who also were regulated the same way, but the products came from much, much, much bigger companies. So, you know, we were always asked about, does money talk? Yeah, it talked if they were larger male companies. It, ta- it talked if they were larger corporate entities. And, you know, over the past two to three years, We're making a huge amount of progress. When we launched that story, which is now eight years ago, the number one question I would get asked is, oh my gosh, did that change everything? Did they just open the doors and say, please advertise? And I've put together over the years about a dozen articles, circumstances, challenges that companies in the space of female health have continued to face that are different than the ones that men have to face. You know, an easy case in point, one of the people I profile in the book is uh, this amazing entrepreneur by the name of Polly Rodriguez who started a business called Unbound. And she was fighting with the MTA, which basically controls all the advertising, the, or the part of it that controls all the ad- advertising in the subways. And, you know, there were ads up for 
for the Museum of Sex and for products that helped men. So how are you justifying that there isn't a space and an opportunity for women's products that are safe, effective products, and you have, you know, you can demonstrate that these products are well-made and well-packaged and all the other things that you should do um, for safety before a product is used. How do you explain that in the same subway platform, one is okay and one isn't? You know, ultimately, she prevailed, and a couple of other companies have prevailed, but it's always a fight. Mm -hmm. It's always a fight. And as far as I know, at this point, 10 years after we first discovered this, there's only one female health product that focuses on any aspect of arousal that has somehow managed to get through the the funnel, the, the, the brick wall that is Facebook. What is that? It's Dame. The name oh, of the product is Dame, you yeah. know, which also I profiled um, in the book. Uh, we were on Facebook for three weeks in 2010. Huge, huge success. Great conversion. Great ROI. And then without discussion, they take you off. You call 100 times. You know, you obviously can't get a human being. And there are dozens and dozens of companies who have faced this. And listen, not everybody wants to be on Facebook. But for the product, for instance, that I started in this field in, our focus was women. 35 plus and committed relationships who have noticed there's a change. They're on Facebook. Right. So what um, What was Dame's secret? They, they were a number of workarounds and I would encourage you to speak to Alex and Janet to get the inside scoop. Um, it's way more than perseverance. You have to figure out a way so that when you post your ad or when you try to get your ad approved, that it is not 100% clear what it is you're talking about. I'll give you another example. Mm-hmm. There's this company in California called Lioness, and there's this great entrepreneur who started it by the name of Liz Klinger. And it's primarily vibrators and smart vibrators, mm-hmm. if you will. She was finally this year able to get eight um, bus stations, bus oh, the, bus stops, yeah, uh-huh. to allow her to advertise her product you know, on the, on the, actually the bus stops. What she wasn't able to do is say that they were vibrators. So, you know, we're making progress. She was able to get the ad up, but right. if you can't use the right language, then it's still more difficult. Right. I mean, doesn't that just sort of create like this sense of shame or this implication of shame if you can't say what we're doing? There's a lot of that. And I'm happy to say there are dozens, if not hundreds of companies focusing on that, creating a language and being comfortable talking about a crime scene. And there's nothing wrong with talking about menstruation. And it is not shameful. And it's something that women go through. The same with every aspect of reproductive health. How could this be shameful? Everybody is going through it. It's not something you choose. It's not something you should be embarrassed by. It's something that happens in the normal course of our biological development and, oh, by the way, prepares our bodies to, to give birth. Right. You know, so there is a ton of shame around sex and sexuality and desire and what is even more concerning to me as you point out if your first experience with understanding that your body is this amazing machine is menstruation and you're not allowed to talk about it and you don't have the language and you're made to feel shame you know that doesn't bode well for how comfortable you'll be talking about your body or exploring um, as you grow up I mean I remember being I guess like I'm 
time being, I was young when I got my period, so I guess it was like preteenish or whatever. Um, like sneaking to the bathroom with my pad or my tampons, didn't want anyone to see. Right, like there's such a. You remember you know, shoving the tampon yes. up the sleeve of your your sweater yes. in the bathroom, and doing that as an adult too, right. and then finally being like, "What am I doing? Right, why am right. I hiding?" <laughs> like, this is kind of ridiculous, right? But um, you know, it's. I mean, I feel like this conversation has to start with children. A hundred percent, and everybody has to make that own their own decision for their kids. And I've chosen a particular way. And having been in this space since my kids were nine or twelve, and, and now they're adults, you know, I chose my own language for how I wanted to describe it to them and what I was doing. And I found that I had to have really clear boundaries because people would once they found out what I did and that I, that I had a product that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction. I became very popular in social settings and carpool lines and everywhere else. And so they would come up to me and start talking to me about their personal sexual issues. And I said, listen, I'm more than happy to help you. I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be a doctor. I'm aware of a lot of products. I can tell you what I know and the products that I've seen that I think are really helping women and the ones that have clinical studies. Full stop. You can't talk about your sexual needs and problems and desires in front of my children. Mm -hmm. If you want to talk about them in front of your children, knock yourself out. But I had to have rules because I had so many experiences. I, I was picking up my son who was in middle school, maybe younger, maybe the end of uh, elementary school. And a woman knocks on my door and she's on my window and she says, I'm a two-time cancer survivor, which is already like... Uh, what do I right. what do I say? I said, right. oh my gosh, that's, I hope you're well, and I had no idea, and you know, how's your health? And she starts talking to me about vaginal dryness, which is a very common side effect of people who have experienced cancer, um, you know, the, the change in hormones and the result of some of the treatment. Totally legitimate, except I have my son in the backseat. And so I kept saying, you know, I have a lot of information. I'm holding up my hand with the international sign of the phone call. I'll call you back. Mm -hmm. You know, I really, I'm, I'm happy to help. I'm happy to share what other information I have. Now's not a good time. I have my son. And we kept doing that continuous loop for what felt like three days, but it was probably about 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And finally, I essentially just put the electric window up on her arm and drove away. And my son just looks up at me and he says, really, mom? that's your marketing strategy, the parents of my friends? And I said, did I say anything after hello? You know, and so I had to really create an environment that I thought was appropriate for my own kids. And I'm happy to have these conversations. And I'm, again, I'm happy to share what I learn and direct people to resources that I think are valuable. But I get to decide how the conversation happens in my home, just like you get to decide how the conversation happens in your home. So what is a day in the life like for you? Because I imagine that there's like a, many hats that you're wearing yeah. through this. What's a typical day? So the primary focus of what I do really is helping these brands and businesses grow and succeed. So whether it's meeting with a potential strategic partner, helping them reposition, identifying what their advertising strategy should be, helping the, them identify how they might want to change their um, funding presentation to attract the right people, getting them in the right doors. So the bulk of my work is helping businesses figure out how to grow top line revenue. Um, the book is sort of um, just an added piece. So I spend a lot of time also um, speaking. As I said today, I'm going to a conference. I speak at colleges. I speak at business schools. Uh, I speak at um, organizations. 
And I spend a lot of time now talking about the book because it really seems timely in the context of so many amazing entrepreneurs building businesses in this space. What seems to be the floodgates opening, although that's my... Um, might exaggerate what's happening in terms of funding coming in to women-owned businesses focused on female health. Um, so I'm always talking about vaginas. I'm always building businesses. I'm always trying to make the conversation comfortable. I'm always trying to promote the importance of the dialogue and the language. A lot of our um, listeners are entrepreneurs mm -hmm. or are on like the cusp of becoming entrepreneurs. Are your services and expertise available to them? Absolutely. Businesses? So what I figured out, I spent my corporate career working for large companies like Johnson and Johnson and Allergan and Bear and Church and Dwight, and I still do because relationships are pretty fundamental to um, the success of my business. But I have found different ways that. I can work with entrepreneurs so they can afford it. You know, I can do the work that I really love to do and hopefully make some contribution to helping them grow. And where can people find the book? It's on Amazon. It's on um, Kindle. It's on iTunes. So it's anywhere you want to be. Just look up Orgasmic Leadership. I'm pretty sure my name will come up. And everything I write about and talk about and, you know, where I'm doing speaking engagements are all on my website. On the name of the company, Spark Solutions for Growth. And I really do love hearing from people. So I always give my email out. It's R-B-S-C-H-E-R-L at sparksolutionsforgrowth.com. I love to hear from people. I love to brainstorm. If you're thinking about an idea in this space, if there's something about it that excites you, email me and I promise to get back to you because I think this is really something critically important and it really energizes me so much being in these conversations that's awesome so we are actually starting and we're bringing through this beauty book club so we'll add your book to our oh I would love that that'd be really cool happy to lead a session and yeah, answer questions oh, that'd be super fun okay well thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today Rachel this is awesome thank you so much for having me and for our listeners I hope you enjoyed this interview with Rachel please subscribe to our series on iTunes and for updates about the show follow us on Instagram at where brains meet beauty podcast Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.